Namani, Nadalo Gana Yartanga in Berindi, Nadal Porkana Poki Unangu, Yalaka, Tarkariara Tampendi, Nadal Purachi, Yacha Miana, Yancha Yartako, Kuma Tampendi, Mani Nina Pudni Gana Yartana, Nina Padni Panima Poki Mokabando, Tuola Poro Tikandi, Tinanya Panda, Tapana Tutakuma, Yancha Gana Yarda, Yacha Yarda. Today we are meeting on sacred Ghana land. We pay respects to all the Ghana that were and all the Ghana that are. We pay respects to all of our elders, Earthside and beyond, and to all First Nations people. On behalf of the ancestors and Ghana people, we welcome you to our country and ask that as you travel these plains, you remember the people that walked here before you. The spirit still lives amongst the steel, the concrete, the roads and the lawns. Wherever you go, you stand on unceded Aboriginal land. Always was, always will be. International Women's Day, Musk says get off Twitter, the RBA puts bosses' opinions ahead of facts, plus good news about the oceans. This is The Week on Wednesday, live. Hello and welcome to this award-winning Week on Wednesday live podcast. I am your co-host of this award-winning podcast, Ben Davison, and joining me here in the Comfort Yurt at the back of the Migration Museum for the Adelaide Fringe Festival is the great, the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon and On, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults, my wife, your friend, Van Badham. Hi! Thank you for joining us in the Comfort Yurt. We absolutely love it here. We're going to be devastated to leave. Next week is our last show. It but is. we are an award-winning podcast now, Ben. I know. Makes the whole trip to Adelaide and the fairly complicated logistics of us being here totally worthwhile. We won a Fringe Award. Suck last that, Steve Bannon. Suck that. <laughs> yes, and Steve Bannon didn't win one and we beat Steve Bannon in the charts, which was an enormous relief. Every time we beat a fascist, I feel slightly more confident about the future. Absolutely. Speaking of beating fascists, Van. I love beating fascists. Our show is going to be very heavily focused on that today. It is. There is a strong anti-fascist streak, as there always is, because of the kind of people who we are. Well, that's right. One of the stories that we talked about in our very first week on Wednesday live at Adelaide Fringe was the story about broccolini. Yes, the broccolini of oppression. Yes. Turns out broccolini is trademarked. For anyone who didn't catch that episode and who is listening in for the first time about this. Broccolini is trademarked. There is a huge amount of exploitation in the supply chain and our good comrades at the United Workers Union have now called for a boycott of broccolini at Coles and Woolworths. So a big shout out to the workers who are taking action and in fact just today Billy Bragg, socialist hero. Absolute socialist hero. One of my favourite, favourite, favourite artists of all time has been travelling around. He's been in Adelaide and uh, doing like a, a series of concerts and he has been going around to supermarkets and singing against broccolini. Yeah, that's right. So Because that's what solidarity looks like. So, look, you know, it's probably not much of a sacrifice on my part to give up broccolini, but there may be some people in the audience either here or at home who broccolini might make up a big part of your diet. 
for the short term. It's quite a painful challenge for me, but I don't think vegetables taste as good if they're saturated with the blood of an exploited working class. So I will be boycotting broccolini and I absolutely encourage everybody to do the same. And I'd like to point out, like, we covered this story in our first week. So two weeks ago I think we started talking about broccolini. And at that point the union weren't calling for a boycott. They were like, you know, we're going to contact the company, we're going to go through this process of negotiation and we're going to try and get a fair settlement. And they've had to escalate to a boycott because the company weren't coming to the table and that's not acceptable. And this is the thing, you know, Ben and I talk about union action a lot and it's important to remember that everybody wants to get these problems sorted out as soon as possible. Workers do, employers should. And if an employer is being recalcitrant, they have to expect an escalation. Speaking of recalcitrant employers, there's one other that I want to mention and it's Qantas. Uh, We've talked about, and and you're right to hiss. (laughs) Literal hisses in the audience. (laughs) Well done, Ellen Joyce. What a brand. Yeah, the spirit of Australia. Um, (laughs) The spirit of Australia is a hiss. (laughs) Well, the refuelers of Qantas airplanes at Melbourne Airport took industrial action today. Uh, Now, Qantas under Alan Joyce has outsourced the refuelling of the planes, just like they've outsourced the baggage handling and the catering services and really as much as you could possibly outsource. I'm not even sure he owns the wings on the planes anymore. But So he's outsourced this to a company called Rivet uh, and the refuelers of Qantas planes have not had any pay rise in three years. Qantas has had record profits and the workers who fuel the planes have not had a pay rise in three years. Because of course not. Because Qantas has become about squeezing, 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 squeezing a workforce that used to have one of the highest levels of respect in this Mm. country. Such a strong brand, the spirit of Australia, something that we felt that we still owned even when it was sold from us. And Qantas is just a a textbook example of the dangers of privatisation and the way that essential services, crucial infrastructure, iconic pieces of, you know, of nationhood essentially, once they're sold, you don't get them back, the values change, the brand changes, the experience changes and the profiteering that has gone on with that corporation is disgraceful. I mean, anybody who flies Qantas knows that the risk of being joist is ever-present. Absolutely. And the Transport Workers Union has obviously been standing side by side together with those workers who have been outsourced by Qantas. So a shout-out to them as well today. Uh, You know, it doesn't matter what industry you're in, what kind of workplace you're in, there is a union for you. We always say this. You can go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W. You can join online. There are unions for people in tech. There are unions for people in community services and obviously, you know, unions right throughout the economy. And on this International Working Women's Day... Before we get into that, I do want to praise some working women, um, some of, of whom course. are here today. I'd like to acknowledge uh, M- Melanie and, Lu- and Louise... 
uh, who they're at their third show. They're fans of the show and, and they have come to all three of our appearances here and I just want to acknowledge how awesome that is. No pressure to come to the fourth. I also I also want to acknowledge another fantastic working woman who's our friend and good comrade, Alison Pennington. Yeah, absolutely. So Alison Pennington has just launched her book, which is called Gen F. Um, Alison is an economist who's worked for the Australia Institute. She's a former organiser for the CPSU. She's an absolute committed warrior for working people in this country. And her book launch last night was absolutely fantastic. I have read Gen Eft. It is about – it's a call to arms for young people to collectivise, mobilise, join unions and and lead the charge of reclaiming a, an economy based on fairness. And it's just full of enraging facts, enraging facts. It's a short read. And the thing that's really good about it is that it demystifies the econobabble that we're so used to seeing as the preserve of privileged Tory men and takes apart the language and gives people the facts and the accessibility into the arguments. So if you're a fan of this show, you will love Alison's book and find it a really great resource. I also want to recommend some shows because there are some other working women who are here who are part of the amazing experience of Adelaide Fringe. Um, Absolutely, I would recommend you come and see Fool's Paradise, uh, which is Brit Plummer's show that takes place in this beautiful yurt. It's beautiful. It's a very sweet little story. Uh, the star of Attenborough and his animals is in here as well. If you have children in your life, it is unmissable. It is the most amazing hour of physical clowning and performance you will ever see, and everybody who has seen that show agrees. I also want to give a shout-out to Manbo, which has been on the yurt as well. I think it may have finished, but certainly a highlight of the festival. I've recommended it to everybody. It's a hilarious deconstruction of masculinity done by Sam Dugmore. And I also saw a fantastic show. You should all go see the Andy Warhol exhibition, obviously, as well, because it's incredible. But I saw Work.exe, which is which is a Marxist show. It collectivises the audience uh, through um, obliged labour. It's the most incredible sort of participatory experience I've had at the festival. And I have to recommend all of those shows. They're just fabulous. So if Peter Dutton is listening, which, you know, we all know he does religiously, you should go to that show and understand what socialism really is all about. Yeah, I mean, you're pretty socialised at the end of that show where you physically build the set and all of the parts are people in the audience who get roped in to do it. So you have this experience of of being obliged into the alienation of labour for a whole hour. Well, you know, it's... It's it's a it's very topical, right? Because this is obviously International Working Women's Day, and you know this is this is very interesting, right? Because you didn't want to talk about this today. No. And and I and I sort of said we probably should talk about it. No, you were more enthusiastic than that. You were like, oh, I can't wait to talk about International Working Women's Day. And I was like, oh, if this comes with a cupcake, I will gag. There are no cupcakes to be clear to those listening at home. But the the reason why I want to talk about it is because. Because this is actually a day of socialist revolutionary uh, achievement. This is not uh, the corporate, you know, working international work, women's day.com, you know, hug, well, pictures of people hugging themselves website, which is a real thing, by the way. I looked it up and it's 
truly corporate uh, nightmare. International Women's Day originated from a strike amongst New York garment workers in 1908. Um, The first organised day... And and in the context of the fact their factories were burning down and people were dying in droves. Yeah, that's right. Women and girls. Yeah, and this wasn't people going, you know, I just feel like having a cupcake. We should stop working. It's like mass death in completely oppressive industrial conditions. And and this is at a time when women didn't have the vote, they didn't have the right to stand for public office. You know, by 1910, German delegates to the International Socialist Women's Conference were proposing a special day for women. And in 1911, the first International Women's Day was marked by a million people across Austria, Denmark, Germany and Switzerland. There were 300 demonstrations in what was then called Austria-Hungary. Those demonstrations demanded the right to vote, the right to hold office and an end to uh, sex discrimination and employment. Now, by 1914, March 8th had been settled on as an International Day for Women. And the thing that really, I think, gets lost in the discussion, and certainly, you know, it's not been something that I've heard a lot about this uh, this year, is that in 1917, yes, that 1917, in Petrograd, A big Russia, year, a big year in Russia, 1917. On March the 8th, the textile workers, women who were textile workers in Petrograd, began a demonstration demanding bread and peace. Seven days after that, the Tsar abdicated and the provisional government gave Russian women the right to vote. Now, this is not necessarily our favourite person from uh, socialist history, but Leon Trotsky is quoted as saying that, and I quote, meetings and actions were foreseen, but we did not imagine that this Women's Day would inaugurate the revolution. Women inaugurated the Russian Revolution, working women drove socialism and fundamentally that struggle is a struggle that continues. Yeah, and the demand for bread and roses comes from American industrial action taken by women saying that it's not just about meeting a material need of food, it's also about leisure and the experience of beauty and that working people deserve to have that experience, that we don't just exist to work, to labour and to die, but that the world should be big and open to all of us. We don't just want bread, we want roses too. And if you ever visit Trades Hall in our home, the People's Socialist Republic of Victoria, uh, you'll notice (laughs) that the the carpet of Trades Hall is a bread and roses pattern to acknowledge that. And there's a a lot of movement going on, like, all over Australia, but obviously we're going to talk about our experience in Melbourne. There's a statue of Zelda Doprano, who was one of the great equal pay campaigners who famously locked herself onto the doors of a government building in Melbourne in order to demand equal pay. That statue is going up outside Trades Hall, which is extraordinary and that kind of effort of commemorating the struggle of working women that often is written out of history. Absolutely. Which is, you know, enraging. And I think, you know, obviously I'm not opposed to International Women's Day. I participate in International Women's Day activities, show my solidarity with other working women and the working class more broadly, and that is important. But I do have, and I think as I get older, I have a growing resentment of the experience of my gender being an experience of it's an economic category 
and you and I have had this discussion before, like my attitude towards gender is gender is something I put on in order to get laid. My gender is important to me and to you as my partner and that's as far as I think it really should go. For me, it's a performance of a series of signifiers that are, are about, you know, an intimate conversation that is also communicated on a, on a social basis based on socialisation. Mm. Um, I resent the fact that because of that expression, I am less likely to earn as much money as you do, even if we do the same thing. Mm. Ben and I play this hilarious game, and we've talked about it on the show before, where Ben and I will often send out slightly differently um, worded versions of the same tweet just to watch literally hundreds of people tell me I'm, you know, like a reprehensible scumbag who doesn't have the right to speak in public and am also, you know, extremely fat and unattractive. And Ben might get one or two people going, well, Ben, I fundamentally disagree with you, but I do understand where you're coming from. And we do that for fun. Like, that's a fun couple game. And then Ben does the the dance of white male privilege and we remember to, you know, strap fighting the patriarchy um, onto our, our list of... Uh, yeah. activities of the day but I mean it is it is extraordinary like particularly in Australia because we have some interesting uh, just social and economic realities to do with gender in this country one of which is that we have one of the most gender segregated workforces in the world mm. and the three industries that have the highest proportion of domination by women are also the three that are the worst paid Absolutely. imagine and in Australia when men start entering a profession and notably one of the examples uh, is nursing when men started to enter the nursing profession in significant numbers the pay went up whereas it, and also information technology traditionally mm. a female doc, uh, dominated workplace when men went into IT the pay went up when women go into profession notably academia what happens mass casualization and the pay goes down mm. and even even in those industries, and there's some interesting stuff out today comparing plumbers and midwives, there is still a gender pay gap within industry. So oh, it, and it's extraordinary. Between um, male plumbers and female plumbers, it works out as like $20,000 a year yeah. in a difference for doing the same job. Yeah, and, and, and so all those kind of arguments about, oh, well, men choose higher paid professions and women choose lower paid professions, like they're just, just they're nonsense arguments. They're, they're attempts to justify a systemic form of discrimination that fundamentally undervalues the work of women and, and and fundamentally is wrong. Like it is a something that we have to address in this country. And I think there are there are a few there are a few things that have been happening to try and address it. Um, and I want to go through. There have been some some wins, and I want to go through the ten union. Wins. And there have been yeah, there've been some wins, and they've been recent too, yeah. which is kind of terrifying. Well, they're, they're all kind of in the last twelve months. These are ten things that have happened in the last twelve. months. You might remember there was like an election federally sort of. It seems to have inspired some significant structural about changes. Ten months ago, amazing. Since then, we've had sort of so ten days paid family and domestic violence leave has become the national standard. Uh, the expansion of paid parental leave from 20 weeks to 26 weeks. Still not great, by the way, in terms of... Where international comparisons, yeah. International yep. comparisons. Um, 
there are stronger equal pay laws now. There's a requirement around that. Uh, 15% pay rise for aged care workers. That's one of those low-paid feminised industries that you talked about before. Uh, the right to have flexible work uh, arrangements, particularly because we know women disproportionately uh, carry the burden of care, both for children and ageing parents. Now. Having done that myself for the past 18 months, I can certainly, yeah, it's extraordinary, yep. Even things like moving from enterprise bargaining to multi-employer bargaining, we know that increasingly feminised industries are atomised industries as well, so they're made smaller groups of workers and therefore more difficult to bargain, so being able to bargain across multiple employers will improve the outcomes for women. Uh, pay secrecy clauses. I mean, this is... And Trades Hall in Victoria is running a campaign to get rid of non-disclosure agreements around sexual harassment, by the way, because the, those non-disclosure... Because they're totally disgraceful? Yeah, because those non-disclosure agreements, along with pay secrecy clauses encourage cultures of secrecy, uh, basically almost victim blaming and stopping people from sharing the information they need to collectively take action to improve their circumstances. And safety in the workplace. Absolutely. And speaking of safety in the workplace, laws to prevent sexual harassment that put the onus on the employer, which... You know, for the life of me, I thought we already had, but no, the onus was never on the employer to provide a safe workplace, uh, new protections from discrimination and a minimum wage increase of 5.2% for women in those low-paid industries. I mean, those are 10 good steps, but Van, the, the gender pay gap still exists, the retirement gap still exists and the care gap still exists. Absolutely. We know that women disproportionately bear the care burden. We know that families often make decisions about care responsibilities uh, based on the fact that men earn more money. If you're in a heterosexual relationship, it financially makes better sense for a family to, de to delegate the lower paid member of that relationship into the caring role. Like, that's awful. Yeah. And what economists have said and what, you know, restructuralising feminists thinkers are talking about is that you there will be no gender equality until we have equality in the workplace, until we have equality of income and equality of opportunity and a workplace that actually accommodates people where they are as opposed to a, a, a fantasy of who they could be. And, and I mean that around things like care responsibilities. One of the key demands that we have to keep making is that childcare should be universal and personally I think free. I think we have to look at an early childhood education system. I mean, it is extraordinary that the the kind of because I had early child um, early childhood education because when I was a, a small child, we lived in Canberra, and it was accessible. It was run by collectives. It was non profit, and it was extraordinary because it enabled my mother to work and for me to get this incredible start. I could read before I went to school, mm. which frankly has got me a very long way. I mean, this is a campaign in, in the, the United... Yurt. In the comfort all the way to the comfort yurt and an award. <laughs> <laughs> but this is a demand that's being made in the United States of America. You know, this was one of the key election pledges that Hillary Clinton made in that parallel universe where everything doesn't turn into neo-fascism. Um, but certainly Elizabeth Warren, like, they, this is a, a, a mainstream political conversation in the United States. Having had experience of Scandinavian workplaces that I've had where I was uh, doing some work in Sweden where they had childcare in the office, mm. like early childhood education 
education, parents, visible, barely any absenteeism because your children are present. It, it, there's a connection there. I mean, it's kind of extraordinary when you see an office design that's based around the presence of small children, accessibility and keeping families together and accommodating workplaces. Like, it, it seems revolutionary and it shouldn't. But the fact that, that early childhood education is not provided universally, one, puts everyone at an educational disadvantage because we know the sooner that children get mm. into formalised early childhood education, the more opportunities they have, the faster their li- uh, literacy and numeracy skills develop, socialisation skills are improved, all of these things. Um, But also we keep women, because what we have discussed, out of the opportunity to develop workplace parity with men. Well, I mean, the stats on this are really telling, right? Because you've pointed out Sweden. So Sweden has around 80% of uh, women in full-time employment. Australia has a little over 40% of women in full-time employment. That compares to almost, uh, I think it's about uh, 70% of men. So, you know, when you look at the knock-on effects of this, it, it means that women are less likely to be in full-time employment, the, the costs are borne predominantly by women, and, and of course we see then later in life too. Like I remember, you know, through my involvement with the union movement, there was a good slogan that was a husband's not a retirement plan, right? Because women fundamentally were retiring with less and are still retiring with less because they're earning less, partly because of these structural disadvantages. And for some working women, childcare is up to $600 a week, depending on where you live. And there was an article that was absolutely condemning the persistence of the activity test, where in order to get subsidised childcare from the government, you have to demonstrate to the government that you are working and therefore deserve it. And it's described as a chicken and egg situation. Like, you can't get the job until you can ensure the childcare, but you can't afford the childcare. I mean, it's crazy. And it's such a waste of potential as well. Like, I always get back to... the, the. the theme of the Finnish education system, and I've mentioned this on the show before, is don't waste a brain. You had a country that had, like, fish and some rocks and not a lot of tradable resources that collectively went, well, what can we do? What resource can we develop as plucky little Finland? And they decided to invest in education and maximise the opportunity of Finnish people to get the best education they could get. And they're one of the most prosperous countries on earth because they believe you do not waste a brain. Mm. Well, a lot of uh, brains and uh, talent gets wasted by the per- perpetuation of systems that exclude people from being able to work. And the, it's not only the intellectual cost of denying people the opportunity to collectively give their labour to the society they live in. The financial problems that are created by these, frankly, structurally sexist systems are an enormous problem. The fastest growing group of homeless people in Australia are women over the age of 55. You know, women retire with a lot less money if you do not have a husband when you retire or find yourself, you know, Mm. unemployed later in life. You are in real financial peril in this country. And it is genuinely terrifying to look at that ongoing structural disadvantage. We know that when women leave the workforce to parent children... 
because of the way parental leave is structured, mm. th- they essentially never quite get back the momentum that they had in the workplace beforehand. And that's a structural inequality that persists until they die in terms of fi- like money accumulated, in terms of education and workplace opportunity and satisfaction and a sense of meaning and purpose and things that men find very important and women do too, except do not get to experience on the same level. And that is extraordinary. Um, you know, it's probably a discussion for a later time to go into more detail, but I just want to explain in the context of my feminist politics and about an equalisation of economic opportunity for women and and, and the, the demand for economic security. Nobody should have to face homelessness anywhere in a prosperous Western country or anywhere else, but certainly not in the last years of their lives when they're, they are vulnerable. Like, that is an outrage. But I'm militantly opposed to the concept of universal basic income for the reason that it is spoken of, oh, well, we'll just give everybody... Nobody will have to work because we'll just pay everybody this, you know, fantasy... Yes, I, a lot of people don't understand. Watch. Thank you. That was my watch. Because, it's, because work is not just about earning an income. It's about socialisation and it's about education and it's about opportunity and it's about fulfilment. And just paying a universal basic income disincentivises accommodating workplaces. Mm. Workplaces that look at childcare and the care of the elderly and intersecting social relationships and opportunities for development and connection and meaning. We know that the more women are isolated socially the more likely they are to experience domestic violence Mm. and the workplace is of course the great socialisation of society which is why men defend their entry to it and their participation in it so fiercely. The more women who are out of the workplace the more vulnerable women there are, de-socialised women and this idea, you know, an economic theory that's going to structuralise the exclusion of women and make that more convenient than actually looking at inclusion and accessibility, it's not feminist, it's structurally anti-feminist and I want people to appreciate that. Rant over. (laughs) Well, I'm not quite over because we've still got at least 25 minutes of the show. So uh, for those just joining us, uh, we are still going. Look, it is International Women's Day and, of course, we should acknowledge that in Iran and Afghanistan today there are women taking life-threatening action to to gain their basic human rights as well. And, and you know, I saw, uh, I saw some tweets earlier today about women protesting in Afghanistan because the Taliban has announced that they will be annulling divorces. Uh, you talk about the social isolation and the removal of women from the workplace. That's a regime that has actively removed women from the workplace and, and been very open about that and today there are women as we as we speak as you listen to this podcast who are taking action to stand up for those rights to, to defend their human rights and uh, you know we just want to offer our solidarity to them as well a uh, parliamentary friends of the Hazara people who one of the oppressed ethnic communities of Afghanistan targeted by the Taliban was actually announced in Parliament House today it's being led by Andrew Charlton and solidarity there's quite a significant Hazara community in Australia and it, it is it, it is 
unconscionable what is happening in Afghanistan and our solidarity is very much with those people. Absolutely. Now, I want to turn to something that's a bit lighter but, you know, also serious. Sort of on theme. Yeah, right? Yes. So There's Elon- no inherent innate superior, superiority of rich white men, as it turns out. I realise this will be a surprise to us all. <laughs> Because, quite frankly, they continue to demonstrate how incompetent they are. Um, Elon Musk, you know... He's uh, the worst, he's the worst, he's the absolute worst. He He's told people to get off Twitter, which is an odd move for someone who paid $44 billion paid to buy Twitter. Paid $44 billion for Twitter. I, if you haven't seen it, it is the most extraordinary series of events. So I, I don't know if you know this, but he is a terrible person. Uh, he has been publishing extremely sexist and degrading memes about women this, yeah. this week. He, of course, has altered the, the algorithms on Twitter. If you're on the platform, you're highly likely to see Elon Musk content. Um, it, and it, it, obviously, the takeover has meant mass layoffs done in extremely shoddy fashion uh, all over the world. And it's all being done supposedly to make Twitter more profitable, they have done such things as sell the office plants um, in their various locations. They haven't... It's been reported that Twitter is not paying bills, notably to Amazon, which doesn't seem like the the kind of company that you want to sever a relationship with. Since Elon Musk took over, all the neo-Nazis have come back to Twitter. He's, of course, reinstated a number of banned accounts. Strangely enough, very large brands who were advertising on Twitter don't like to be associated with neo-Nazi content and advertising revenue has dropped 40% since he took over. But, Ben, the Tesla share price, the money from the Tesla corporation that Elon Musk owns, is, of course, underwriting the whole the whole Twitter enterprise, dropped significantly today, and you might want to explain why. Well, because not only did Elon Musk tell people to get off Twitter and communicate in person, which is sort of driving people away from his own platform, he did it after having already attacked... Uh, a hero of the Icelandic people, <laughs> a, a gentleman by the name of Harley, who is a technology designer, who who created a company that Twitter bought before Elon Musk bought Twitter. So the context of this is that Harley, and this is his internet name at Harley, uh, is an Icelandic programmer developer, yeah. and he had developed some software that was sold to Twitter some time ago with the provision that he would be employed by Twitter. We'll get to why he chose that particular arrangement in a moment. But Harley appeared on on Twitter in the past 24 hours, personally asking Elon Musk if Elon Musk could resolve his employment situation because Harley had been locked out of his Twitter account, his Twitter computer, for the past nine days. And he'd repeatedly been contacting Human Resources Mm. to ask what his employment status was and brought this up with Elon Musk. And how did Elon Musk respond, Ben? In the most defamatory and insulting way possible, basically accusing Harley of pretending to be disabled, not doing any work, uh, and knowing that he had been sacked and was really just raising it in order to bump up his severance. It was just the most incredible series of tweets one can imagine. Oh, yes. So being accused of doing no work and pretending to effectively pretending to be disabled was the implication of the tweets. Yeah. And would be, that would be considered a reasonable analysis in a court of law, yeah. which people are talking about rather a lot because it turns out that Harley has muscular dystrophy. 
and is is a person with severely impeded mobility who himself disclosed that he needs help getting into bed, going to the bathroom. Um, Harley, as it turns out, the reason why he doesn't do a lot of keyboard work is not only because he's lost a lot of uh, movement and mobility in his arms and finds it quite painful and difficult, but because he's in quite a senior management role at Twitter actually directing design departments Mm. because he is something of an organic genius of the working class and built up a company that has been rumoured to be valued at around $100 million that was a software company that was purchased by Twitter on the condition that Harley would be, um, rather than take just a a lump sum for the acquisition of the company that he started, that he, in fact, would be employed by Twitter for the reason that he is from a working-class family and with quite serious medical and care needs, had relied on the state of Iceland and the taxation revenue of Iceland to provide the services that enabled him to have a really high quality of life. And he took a salary from Twitter because he wanted to pay a higher tax rate back to the Icelandic government that had helped him enjoy such an extraordinary experience of life. Harley won something like four Icelandic Person of the Year awards in the past 12 months. Because not only is he some kind of computer genius who pays extraordinary amounts of tax, but he is also leading the campaign and actually paying for the installation of disability ramps all over Iceland to make it the most accessible country on earth. So, needless to say, Elon Musk is now backpedalling frantically and has literally said, you know, Twitter is not the best way to communicate. Sometimes you should just communicate in person. Yeah. So it has been pointed out that Elon Musk has engaged in... I mean, he mocked this man for being disabled. Um, He mocked this man for the work that he was doing. He did it publicly. He denigrated his work. And given the fact that defamation on that level, one of the interesting things that is so extraordinary about this story is that Elon Musk's own changes to Twitter mean that a tweet and how many people have seen it Mm. is data visible to everybody. And all of these defamation lawyers on Twitter have been like, pick me, pick me because of the size of the defamation can now be quantified in terms of not only how much money uh, Twitter paid for this company and how much this man's labour was considered to be worth to Mm. the company, but the proportion of Musk's, like, denigration and defamation of him, implying he tweeted that this guy was the worst. And it's like, ostensibly, that's that's objectively not Mm. true, given the fact he has been recognised as the best person in Iceland, rather rather comprehensively. But it is the most disgusting indulgence by a terrible human being. And Harley himself made a joke about... And and this man has shown incredible good grace in this situation where apparently Elon Musk seems to be speaking to what should be private 
medical records and disclosing this to the Twitter audience, whereas, and this man had to say, look, I'd be in breach of employee confidentiality if I describe my job to you. And Elon was like, oh, no, no, tell, tell me what you're supposed to be doing. Mm. And, he, and he responded with quite good grace. He said, you know, it's really interesting. Um, you and I actually have something in common, Elon, because I require assistance to use the bathroom. And I hear this is also true about you because in the past week it's been revealed that Elon Musk takes bodyguards to use the bathroom at Twitter because he has become so paranoid that everybody hates him so much there might be a workplace coup. This has been reported extensively. And I just want everybody to situate this in the discourse where we get told that these tech billionaires and tech bros, and aren't they always bros, bros, are going to save the world because the amount of power and influence Elon Musk has on the basis of his you know, capital accruement, mm. a lot of which came from governments paying him for services anyway. Is this the kind of person who we want directing the creation of infrastructure or what markets look like or what the supposedly democratic square is supposed to look like? Because it's not a democratic public square if it's owned by a reprehensible individual who has absolute power over what can and can't be platformed there. And needs to be guarded one using the toilets in the office. So it'll I mean, be that's... interesting to see. I made the point that, you know, congratulations to Elon Musk for insulting the national hero of a, of a country that is apparently at least 60% Viking because historically <laughs> that tends to end really badly. It really does. Van, t- talking about the control over markets and talking about the, the bros influencing public policy and shaping our democracy... Uh, yet another episode of the week on Wednesday where the interest rates have gone up. It's the 10th time in a row. Phil Lowe, uh, you know, the, the baby-faced smiling assassin of the Reserve Bank, the high priest of monetary policy, um, you know, the, the Friedmanite in, uh, in Keynesian clothing, whatever you want to call him, has, he, he has admitted, <laughs> he has admitted that... They are relying on their own surveys of corporate executives, corporate bosses, uh, and what they're telling them about wages and what they're telling them about market conditions, in inverted commas, rather than the ABS stats, which show that wages have only gone up 2.5%, which show that actually wages are going down across the economy but rather they're taking the word of the corporate executives going, well, we feel like there's a lot of pressure. We feel like there's a lot of pressure on wages. We're going to have wages go up. There's a... Even despite the data, despite the reality, they're, they're still leaning on what they call their business surveys and business liaison to justify this incredible impost on the vast majority of the Australian public. Let's circle back to what I was saying about economics. Like, economics is not the chant of a priestly caste. It is not arcane knowledge possessed only by a blessed few who all happen to go to the same schools and universities and are men who prefer the colour grey. And this is a really good example of of what has has happened culturally when we, when we as a society choose to believe that those 
those guys somehow know more about the exchange of goods and services and monetary values and where resources go than we do. The idea that the governor of the Reserve Bank is like, well, man, look, I'm talking to employers and they tell me something that is, is true that the stats from the ABS tell me the opposite to, so I'm going to go with, you know, sort of anecdata well, from business. It's that, just the extro- vibe. It's the vibe. We're literally in the place, and we've seen this again and again. We've seen this in the robo-debt inquiry as well, the Royal Commission into robo-debt, where you have these extremely senior, qualified Mandarin-type people going, oh, well, yeah, it was just kind of the vibe, so I went with it. I didn't really ask any questions or consult any data or really look at the facts that were printed in front of me. I just sort of went with what, like, felt like it should be the truth, and that is so dangerous. Like, obviously, economically, it's disastrous. And, of course, the Reserve Bank blunt instrument of, oh, well, we'll just well, we'll stop wages from crawling upwards. We're just going to keep putting up interest mm. rates and keep putting them up and punishing working people again and again and again. And it's interesting because they justified the last interest rate rises as being counterinflationary and they justify the interest rate rises before that as being counterinflationary and the ones before that as being... And it's interesting because they keep doing the same thing and yet... The inflationary problem is not going away. Because ultimately, and we've discussed this before on the show, the inflation problem that we have in Australia, like most of the Western world, is due to profiteering. 69% of our current inflation is due to companies putting up prices more than they need to. If you took that out, inflation would be in the target band. That's, you know, the language they use. And in fact, there would be no inflation crisis. It's what the Reserve Bank is doing is it's punishing working people in order to prop up the profiteering that's being done by people like Alan Joyce and Qantas, you know, companies like the Commonwealth Bank. These are these are fundamentally taking money from working people and transferring them to corporations and executives. And to give you an example, the latest increase uh, lifts the cash rate to 3.6%. That means some people will be paying about 6% for their mortgage, right? A third of people in Australia have a mortgage, a third of people rent. So two-thirds of people have some connection to debt that's issued by a bank. 15% of people who borrow, who have borrowed money for their mortgage, will now be in negative income. That, what does that mean? That means that every month, every week, more money is going out the door than is coming in the door. And that means that if they have no savings, and increasingly now fewer and fewer Australians have savings, they're going to be racking up other forms of debt, payday loans, credit cards, personal loans. That's going to put them in a deeper and deeper hole. These sorts of these sorts of debt spirals can get out of control very, very quickly. And the danger here is that Phil Lowe listening to the vibe guys in his business liaison unit rather than looking at the ABS stats, which clearly show, clearly show that we're heading to a record level of debt repayment for households in this country. They put it up one more time and we're there. We are going to be... We are some of the most. Oh, but it'll be counterinflationary, Ben. Well, it will be. I mean, they'll be counterinflationary. I mean, they're going to do it again, and it'll be counterinflationary again. And 
the problem is, of course, that is based. All of this is based on a failed neoliberal economic model that says, in order to control inflation, you have to have a large pool of unemployed people who also keep wage demands low. Now we have low unemployment and we have low wage demands. That model, that neoliberal, freebonite low model of the economy is not real. It's never been real. It's a model. And fundamentally, it doesn't take into account power relations. It doesn't take into account the fact that we have some of the most casualised workers in the world. We have some of the most ABN-based, sole-trading people uh, workers in the world. And we have some of the most gender-segregated employment in the world. Those factors are keeping wages low in this country, even with low levels of unemployment. And I want to speak about the cultural problem that this creates as well. Like, we keep getting told that these interest rate rises, which are affecting real people, not distant balance sheets, real people. And you can see it on social media where people um, sharing their receipts from buying groceries and making notes about how basic products that they consume are going up and how much pressure that's putting on households. And with rising interest rates, how difficult it is for them to meet that gap with what they're obliged to pay and what they can pay. When you have the vibe guys in grey insisting that up is down and black is white and what corporate Australia says is true must be true, you end up with this fundamental cultural mistrust in institutions. Mm. And it is very very dangerous for the people to lose trust in the Reserve Bank and to lose trust in any kind of like governmental or economic policy. You know, when when our lying eyes are what we're supposed to disbelieve as opposed to what these, these people tell us, you end up with the kind of social fracturing, the temptation towards extremism, people in distress. And we can't, you know, one of the things that I learned when I was writing my book, QAnon and On, is that it only takes one serious fall from economic status to turn a middle class person into an extremist. Like that is the backbone of the extremist movements in the United States of America are people whose businesses have failed or who've had a catastrophic divorce or child custody problems or an interruption to their economic expectations of what their life has been. And when that happens, when you are putting that kind of class of people in jeopardy, the kind of reactions that they have culturally can be extremist and dangerous. And I cannot, I cannot underline enough the kind of political consequences that spiral out of control when that kind of trust is lost. And we are now on the verge of 15% of people being in that situation, situation where they're going to have an economic shock, where they may lose their business, they may lose their home, they may be forced to sell their home, they may be forced to find some other form of rental. And frankly, anyone who's tried to rent in any capital city around Australia knows, or even a regional area knows, that that's not an easy thing to do. I just want to, before we move on to some good news, because we like to have some good news. Yeah, we've got some good news. I want to say that... I mean, the world isn't all misogynists, Elon Musk and vibe guys, although the Venn overlap between them is quite strong. It's pretty strong. (laughs) It's interesting to note that the last time we had 
disinflation or deflation in the Australian economy was actually when we made childcare free. So when we made childcare freely available to working people, inflation went into the negative. So maybe there's a role here for government policy beyond the Reserve Bank. Gosh, it's almost like having a cradle-to-grave welfare state is actually the foundation of any kind of progressive collective democracy. Who'd have thought? I know, right? Wow. We're so out there. <laughs> now, Van, the good news, and this is this is remarkably good news, this is good news that's decades in the making. 19 years in the making. 19 years. So yeah. a decade, almost two almost decades. Almost two decades in the making. Is around the oceans. Ocean us, protection, man. baby. They've done it. They have done it. They have an international agreement after 19 years of negotiation that is going to protect from exploitation 30% of the world's seas, which is great, which is really, really good. That means no overexploitation, no overfishing, agreements based around research, countries working together in order to head off climate catastrophe, pollution problems, overfishing and species destruction, all of those things. And it's it's good because they've also factored in indigenous relationships to marine communities. There are, you know, carve-outs for traditional practices. Mm. All of these things are really good. And this is hugely positive. They're calling it like the High Seas Treaty, It's I called believe. It's called the Intergovernmental Conference on Marine Biodiversity of Areas Beyond National Jurisdiction, also known as the BBNJ. They're calling it the High Seas Treaty. <laughs> and, it, and it's great because what it represents isn't just a commitment to protect oceans, but it also represents a commitment to take climate threat overfishing all of species protection seriously, but also it demonstrates that countries can actually work together, no matter how different they are, no matter how diverse their interests, their traditions and the rest of it, and come up with collective agreements that are in our shared interests of humanity and the environment. And that is worth celebrating that that mechanism has been proven to work. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's great news. A third of the world's oceans now going to be protected. It, you know, only two thirds left to go. Great yes, news. only two thirds <laughs> left to go. And if we could do something about the plastic, that would be great. Regular, regular listeners of this program know that the uh, percentage of plastic in the oceans is a bit of a personal obsession. It is. Look, next week we will do our final week on Wednesday live from Adelaide Fringe here in the yurt. We do have South Australia's Attorney General joining us. We are having a special episode next week where we will be talking about The Voice because, of course, the extremely progressive state of South Australia has passed a local voice. So South Australia has a voice. The Attorney General will be coming in to talk to us about it. And if you've got voice questions, we will answer them next week. And, of course, the week on Wednesday is possible because there are so many people who have contributed to making this a reality. Some of them are sitting here in this yurt because you've bought tickets or you've been a supporter of the show. Uh, and we we love you all. Like, the week on Wednesday started in our shed. It's always going to be free to listen. It's always going to be free to download. 
but people make a choice to make a contribution. And even if that contribution is just sharing it and talking about the issues that we raise, it's joining your union. We love hearing stories about people who've used the week on Wednesday as a means of joining their union, talking to their workmates about joining the union. The, the guy who played the week on Wednesday in the car while he drove his mother to work every day for, I think it was a month, until she finally agreed to join her union, I think is one of my favourite stories of all time. Um, but of course, fam, we like to give shout outs to our cadre. These are people who contribute $20 a month, our Extend the Reach supporters who contribute $10 a month. Uh, and of course, always a big collective shout out to our Buck a Week and One Off supporters as well. You've helped us reach nearly 800,000 downloads. Uh, it's been a remarkable ride. Van, who are our cadre? Okay. Love your work, Yeti Yeti, Andy Baldin, Claire, Jason Dallas, Camille, Akiva Buras, Kristen Sakluna, Gabe Kramer, Stephen Ake, Trish Corey, Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona McNeil, Giota, Jed Carney, Christine Cole, Tamara James Bromwin, Punch Drunk Veteran, Jenny Forster Seven, Joe Fleming, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, No Twitter for Me, Hannah Honda, Matt Bush, Richard Sands, Glenn Robbie, Brash Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Linda Cardwright, Lat Leanne Shingles, Donna Chapman, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash 20, Billy Three McCabe, Narissa Simon, at Catagal, Lauren Ashen Banjo, Matthew Hadley, Adnarungaman, Shane Horsfall, John Sharpen, Peter Bath, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, Steph, Karina Barley, J.C. Campbell, Leona Gibbons, and then our Extend the Reach supporters, <laughs> Helen, Sonia, sorry, Sonia Kelly, Darina, Kathy Hay, Donald Vaughan, Damien Marley, Michelle Norton, Rodney Slap, Cameron, Trial Dragon, Daniel, at Crazy Keza, John DeHaan, Ange Fennell, Anna Uran, at Ross Kenner 888, Kathy Burgess, Kirsten Black, Melanie Denning, Jody A, Penelope Judge, Jane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope, at K Not, Didham, Sharon Kelly, Beckham Lola, Richard Graver, Someone, Vita W, Tanya George, Dandita Hadley, Maroya Louise Hawker, Maroya Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Honan, Ad Galvez, Greg Martin, Trainer, Annie Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah, Elon and Andrew, Ivor Spillett, Andrew Bryan, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Keith Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Bunkum Magic, Hattie Ward, the real Never Long Body, not, San, not Sandy B at the Sandy Bomegard, Renee McGee, Stuart Munn, Matthew Case, Marky Mark, Ak, Vic and Bit, Adrian Valente, Maritza at Caradale 68, Frank Nehus, Erica Pizzuti, Joe Lapino, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry Arthur and Pauline Mate! <laughs> And I apologise to anyone whose name I slightly screwed up. That was a lot. There were some new names on that list, which is great, but also difficult. (laughs) That is... Send your children to drama school. (laughs) That is The Week on Wednesday, live from Adelaide Fringe. Thank you so much for joining us here in the Comfort Yurt. We hope you had a comforting time. We hope you had a really great time. We've loved our time here. We look forward to our final show. Don't forget to tune in to The Weekend Wrap on Sunday where I'll cover off what's been happening in Parliament uh, and give you a bit of a foreshadowing for the final week on Wednesday live next week. Thank you so much, everybody. I love you, Benny. I love you too, Benny. Bye. Bye.